All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is uh, in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? You uh, do need to put your name on a waiting list for Chen's letter. He will be accepting new subscribers during the first couple of weeks of the new calendar quarter. You can, however, go to uh, to my uh, you can, however, go to miningstocks.com to sign up for Chen's letter. Put your name on the waiting list, or you can sign up for my newsletter at any time at miningstocks.com. You can also call our uh, office here in New York City during normal work hours uh, at seven one eight four five seven one four two six. I do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, and I want to encourage you to send along your questions. Uh, the address is questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions the number four, uh, taylor at gmail.com. Uh, we do hear from you. I read all of the questions that come in, all of the comments and criticisms, praises, what have you, and uh, I thank you all for uh, the feedback that you're providing for me because that is very valuable uh, in helping us to go forward with the show. Also, I'd like to encourage you to go to uh, to follow me on Twitter at JTaylorMedia. I um, want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Vino Silver and Mines. Uh, we have Novo Resources, RN Resources, Kalinex Resources, and Balmoral Resources. Before I get started on today's show, I would like to talk a little bit about some of our sponsors because I am very proud to have each and every one of them. They are companies that I feel very confident about. I should say, first of all, that each of those five companies I just named are companies that I have recommended to my subscribers in my newsletter, Uh, and uh, I own shares of most of them as well. Uh, I would uh, just start it out with a couple of comments about, first of all, Avino Silver and Gold Mines is selling at around $1.33 today. That's in Canadian money. This company has been earning profits even at these low silver prices, and it is on a very substantial growth path. Uh, So when the price of silver finally turns, I think the company should be in great shape. It's managed to keep its share count very low, which is very important because once uh, the market cap is quite low and once the enterprise value starts to rise dramatically with higher prices and with increased production, I think you'll see these shares rise very dramatically. At least that would seem to be the logical conclusion. Uh, the company, as I say, is doing well and uh, just uh, last week raised some $10 million by, uh, through some financing, I think very, very ingenious financing being done 
with a major Japanese company where they will sell their, uh, their concentrates, their copper and silver concentrates forward. So very good in that it allows the company to use the capital to expand its production and reduce its costs uh, without diluting shareholder interest, which to me is a very, very big deal. So Avino Silver and Gold Mines, I will be talking to Malcolm Davidson, the treasurer of that company, uh, next week actually on this show. So uh, I hope that you'll turn in, tune in to hear what uh, Malcolm has to say. Two weeks from now, I'll be speaking to Darren Wagner. He's the CEO of Balmoral Resources, and this is a company that is one of the most successful Canadian exploration companies over the past several years when there have been very few successes uh, to talk about. Uh, Darren Wagner's company is continuing to explore both its uh, Martinair gold property as well as its Grasset nickel property. Both of those have world-class potential. The results have been very, very solid. Uh, and this is a company, too, I think is going to be heading in the right direction as soon as uh, we finally see a turn in the precious metals markets. Now, three weeks from now, I will be speaking to Quentin Henning. He's the CEO of Novo Resources. Actually, I spoke to Quentin this morning privately, uh, and things are really shaping up well, in my view, on several fronts for Quentin's uh, company. Uh, he's taken advantage of some really weakness in, the, in this gold market, uh, in this gold sector now, to pick up some tremendous gold properties with the potential to provide, I think, high-grade, really high-grade early production, as well as longer-term exploration potential. Quinton uh, has been uh, down in Australia uh, walking the outcrops here for the past 10 years or so, and he's had his eyes on these properties for many years, and now during the weakness he's been able to pick up uh, a couple of those properties at, at bargain basement prices. They just uh, put out some a couple of press releases this past week talking about uh, exactly that. Now, they are not to replace anything they're doing at Beaton's Creek. The Beaton's Creek Whitwater's Rand type of deposit that they have identified, and the target there early on is the oxide near-surface uh, free-milling gravity uh, separation story here and it's a very it looks like it should be a very low cap low cap cost low operating cost operation uh, and there's a lot of other things that I think could be coming forward to us uh, Quentin told me this morning he expects to have a new resource coming out within the next few weeks in the near future, I will be talking to the CEOs of both Orion Resources and Kalinex Resources. The management of Orion is uh, run by a group of guys who have been extremely successful in exploration and bringing company and, and making money for shareholders uh, through their exploration efforts. And it looks to me like they're on to another success story uh, in Nunavut. Uh, that's not all that far from Agneagle Eagle's property, a major gold deposit that that company is pushing forward uh, and uh, keep in mind that the last deal the management did of this company was that Mexican project in which they made a lot of money selling it off to Agneagle Eagle. Whether that happens again remains to be seen. There are other major companies that are traipsing around. It's getting harder and harder for companies to find high-grade gold deposits around the world. So yes, you're off into places like Nunavut, which, are, which have their own uh, challenges, but uh, if the grades are high enough and there's enough gold, uh, it it can work very very well. And I, I do think that the chances are very good we'll see success out of RN resources. I will be, as I say, talking to the CEO of that company in the near future. Also, providing a high probability of success in my view, Max Porterfield's Calinex Resources. Now that company is up in Manitoba. It is uh, a base metals and silver property project uh, target there, high-grade stuff, uh, but they are in the backyard of another major company that is running out of ore. So they're in a position, uh, very possibly, I think, to be uh, taken over 
by the company that's going to need mill feed going forward. At least uh, that would seem to be one of the major parts of the story there. But they are on to some very good exploration results early on. A high probability success story in my view. Uh, and we'll be talking to Max Porterfield of Calinex Resources in the not-too-distant future as well. Uh, so just uh, the bottom line for me, I'm very pleased and very proud to have these sponsors, and we'll be talking to each and every one of them in the weeks to come. Now let's get on to today's show. I've, uh, I've titled today's show, Will a Currency War Turn into a Hot War with China? Richard Mayberry and Michael Oliver uh, are my guests today. As we, have, uh, as we head inexorably, in my view, um, inevitably, into a Keynesian-induced global depression, an economic depression that I think is starting to show itself very seriously in China. Uh, how will all of that be resolved? Will the nations of the world agree to a return of a sound, non-political, pro-trade monetary regime based on gold? Or will the NATO alliances seek to perpetuate a fraudulent-based dollar currency system through the force of its military-industrial complex? With massive Keynesian-induced debt money, Commodity prices and now stock prices in most of the markets around the world are starting to head downward. Indeed, uh, with oil and copper and some of the main uh, industrial materials, they're going down very, very significantly. How far can this debt deflation go before this uh, sort of helicopter money drop uh, a la Bernanke uh, occurs, uh, akin to what we saw and what people, our grandfathers saw in the Weimar Republic? Well, how much longer can this go before panic sets in uh, and uh, these banks start to uh, start to put out dollars and, and other currencies? Well, we're starting to see that. I think we're starting to see this currency war and the Chinese de- de- uh, devaluing their currency, I think, is the first serious salvo toward what could be something that spins out of control as one country tries to gr- create an advantage against the next by devaluing their currency very dramatically. And in the case of China, on a trade-weighted basis, uh, I saw some numbers this morning that suggest that they are 30% overvalued on a trade-weighted basis with it, with the other emerging markets. So if that's the case, then China, we could see some very, very substantial declines uh, and devaluations from China coming our way. And that could really, really start to roil the markets, unfortunately. But I think that's uh, very much what uh, could be at hand. Well, most of, important of all, of course, is today's question and today's show, the question that I'm raising on today's show, and that is, uh, will this end up in a shooting war or will cooler heads uh, and rational human beings prevail and avoid uh, what would be destructive to humankind overall? We hope uh, and pray that, that's, uh, that that is the case. But, uh, you know, that is one of several topics we want to talk to Richard Mayberry about when he visits us at about a half past the hour. Uh, but before we get to Richard, uh, we want to examine the fundamental questions of economics and politics uh, with Richard, but then right now we want to talk to Michael Oliver as soon as we come back from the break. Michael always has some good advice uh, based on his work that he's doing, uh, de- deciphering the language of markets, which I think are uh, ultimately more valuable than the babble that we get 
from various people, like uh, even yours truly, uh, we we look at the world as we see them with our very limited resources. What uh, I think astute technical analysts like Michael Oliver can do is provide a picture of what a collective picture of what all the wisdom in the world is providing uh, collectively in the market. So we do want to talk to Michael. We have to go to a break right now, our first commercial break. But when we come back. Michael Oliver will be with me, so don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me once again Michael Oliver. And Michael is a regular guest on this show, so I'm not going to read his uh, his bio, but it is available at the Voice America Business Channel on uh, my radio show page at the Voice America Business Channel. Go there uh, and check him out. But uh, also what I would suggest is you go to OliverMSA.com, Oliver. M is in Mary, S is in Sam, A is in Albert.com. Go there to learn more about Michael and his work. In fact, that's probably the place that you should really go to, and his bio will be there. You can learn all you need to know about Michael. Thank you for joining me again, Michael. Great to be back, Jay. Always good to have you uh, in your weekly uh, weekend missive, I should say. You you noted that all manner of markets and all sorts of, I think, the Forex, the commodity, the debt, and the equity markets have become increasingly volatile. Uh, in fact, you know, we saw, I think, something more than a 6% decline in the Chinese markets this day. Yet, uh, you note that the U.S. equity markets have been enjoying a fair amount of tranquility. 
uh, you know, most people would say, well, that's, that's good. I mean, uh, this is the reason that you should put everything you've got into the U.S. equity markets. It's the only safe haven in the world. But your thoughts are not necessarily along those lines, whereas you're not really expecting a dramatic plunge necessarily. You're sort of thinking that maybe people should start to be rethinking things. Is that right? Yeah, I think the volatility metrics are, are important. You know, there, are, of course, is the very popular VIX index, which is used against various assets, including sure. the S&P 500. There's even contracts. You can trade options. You can trade against it. Uh, it is a metric that measures volatility via the pricing of options against the S&P 500. So it's an option pricing implied volatility measure of volatility. I do something different. I measure volatility via momentum. Uh, standard deviation bands of, of momentum readings, so now momentum of price. So I come up with volatility readings that sometimes will tend to concur with, be coincident with what the VIX index is saying. Oh. However, there's a distinct difference here. Over the last three years, the VIX index for the S&P 500 has, been, has recurrently made lows at 11 and 12 points, very, very low levels for it. Normally, when you get extreme complacency, very low levels of volatility. It means the market's vulnerable for the downside. I mean, and the investors are so confident they're not even buying puts and calls. You know, it, it, everything's great. But that's been the case for three years in the VIX, and yet there's no drop in the mm. market, uh, which, which says boy, we've stretched the reality of that, that metric almost beyond the beyond. My metrics, however, did not get to levels that indicated extreme complacency until last September. Mm. So we're talking like 10 months. So, and we, once we got there, what happened the next month was we had the October mini crash. The S&P dropped a couple hundred points. Remember, from yeah. 2000, down to 1820. Now, that re- recouped, came back up, and now I've got volatility readings, again, via momentum, back down toward the levels where they were in September of 2014 again, at extremely low historical levels. Now, if I go back 90 years using this same metric, volatility of momentum, and I find readings this low, it almost invariably links up to a major top. Now, I won't say it's a, it's a wet noodle indicator. It's not something you say, oh, my God, let's get short. You, know, yeah. uh, you might be three months off either way. You know, but it, it generally is a, is a very dark cloud. Um, now, what I've noted uh, in the last few years is the foreign exchange markets, for example, a year and a half, two years ago, were extremely dormant far more dormant than they normally are throughout history. Dollar index would barely move, the euro would barely move, and therefore I had volatility readings that were just, you know, like asleep. Uh-huh. And therefore, based on that, I forecast that, one, I was looking for the dollar to go up, but two, a volatile upside. And so we got that. Now, it wasn't co- correlated month to month, but it was in general that said, watch out, the foreign exchange markets are going to come out of their sleepiness, and that's the biggest market in the world, after all, and get oh. violent. So one of the big markets that was asleep got violent, sure enough. The euro went down, yen collapsed, uh, dollar went up big, so forth and so on. There is no major market category in the world right now other than the U.S. equity market that is asleep. Therefore, I think the U.S. equity market's volatility is going to increase, and I do not think the volatility will convert to upside in price. I think it will convert to downside. Mm-hmm. The question is when. You know, right now, next month, the following month, soon, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, soon is a relative term. Mm-hmm. And uh, soon means, uh, well, I don't know. I guess, I guess what you're doing is you're looking at probabilities on an ongoing basis in your own mind. 
that's a, that is a cloud indicator. It says something that says there's a dark cloud over you. Now, I go to more specificity on, on, on trigger numbers, and I, I've got sure. one. And it's my final trigger number, and we didn't hit it this month. We missed it by three points. Uh-huh. It's 2041. We went to 2044 low. Next month, that number is going to jump to 2062, approximately. my uh-huh. estimated new number. So uh, if the S&P tags that number next month, and it rises about 20 points a month, uh, I expect that all the topping action that I've recorded and, and measured in, in the momentum work will finally bear fruit. In other words, it will finally capitulate uh, and, and, and therefore increase its volatility and therefore join the crowd of other assets that are in extremely volatile nature. So the mm-hmm. S&P now is the only one, and it's, it's the only one in the equity markets as well. I mean, you can measure Europe. Uh, I, I measure the DAX index, for example, or Shanghai. Extremely volatile. You know, they're, they're totally in sync with the volatility of the foreign exchange markets, volatility in gold, volatility in debt markets. It's the S&P 500 and, and a few blue-chip indexes in the U.S. that are asleep like a little mouse. You know? <laughs> and I think that's going to come undone. Um, I don't think this, this will last much longer, and I think it will correlate into a downside market. Well, so I guess people are seeing the U.S. markets as a safe haven. But, you know, Michael, when I'm looking, I'm looking at the S&P 500 right now, it's at 2096. Not thought, not all that far from 2062. So, a that's, couple of that's uh, true. No. <laughs> it seems a couple to know of, where to I, keep its toes from touching, though. I've I've noticed that over the last several months. Anytime yeah. I come up with a, with a final number, it'll come down within two three points of it. And say, uh uh-uh, not now. So, um, ultimately, though, it doesn't seem to escape. Really, it just seems to avoid mm-hmm. breaking down. It doesn't really take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just says, uh uh-uh, I don't want to jump now. <laughs> so. Uh, I think it's on the ledge, and I, I, I suspect that within the next four to eight, four weeks or so, we'll see some action on the downside. All it needs is a little gentle push, perhaps. A huh? gentle push, yes. Yeah. So you, so what? I guess when people people look at these markets that are extremely tranquil, low volatility, uh, you know, stable to up, and and um, when you see that for a protracted period of time, I and mean, we've had a seven-year bull market here, I guess this is pretty protracted, isn't it, this equity market, mm-hmm. too? It's long in the tooth, as they say. Oh, there's no question it's long in the tooth. And uh, there, there have been some prior examples of this. Uh, and it's not uncommon if you just, you just reference price charts, for example. Yeah. Go back and look at 1937. Go back and look at, uh, oh, uh, 2000. Mm-hmm. Back and look at 2000 to 2008, there were a lot of months spent going lateral with a steady, confident tone. Yes. No real gains, just, you know, hey, I'm up here and I'm fine and, you know, what me worry. Uh, yeah. and, and so this, this protracted, slow, stagnant, uh, low volatility topping action is not uncommon. Uh, and I think that's what we're going through right now. Well, that's certainly the the tone you get when you turn on uh, the major media, for sure. And, um, you know, uh, well, again, it gives some examples, then. I, I guess you just named some, then, in which we've seen these protracted periods of time. So, you're, what, what, what are you thinking? You, you think we're pretty much uh, close to the bottom. Uh, your, your readings are telling us in oil right now, WTI, I saw this, uh, was closing uh-huh. in yesterday, uh-huh. earlier today, on, on about $40 a barrel. You think we're getting... Pretty close to the. Getting, uh, I think we're getting close. I don't expect a dramatic surprise here. I think the dramatic move already occurred, and most people missed it. That was the collapse last year from ninety-six dollars down to uh, in August, and and by March of this year you reached near forty-two. I mean that was it. If you're looking for another one of those, forget not going to happen. Now, can you uh, falter on down and take out the low? Sure, and we just did. And in, in right. this past week or so, we took out the March low at 4203. We dropped down in the 41s. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not confident one way or the other whether we're going to break 40. I don't think it's relevant. I think that most of the factors that I needed to see build a basing pattern have now begun to do so, and this drop is part of a basing pattern. Uh, but my near-term to intermediate-term trading-type indicators say, beware of the potential for a very sharp oil upturn here. Now, I don't mean one that's going to take you to $70, but uh, going from the very low 40s back up to 50 could be something accomplished in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And I see the technicals ready for that. Um, I think that's all part of, and remember, oil's a lag commodity. It's not a leader. It's it's the dog at the end of the tr- end of the end of the end of the rope. Uh, gold already collapsed two years ago. Soybeans, corn, all that. that those are history. So oil was the last headline negative commodity, and it's the one that got all the negative sentiment built up about how commodities are going to keep going down, which I don't buy into. I think commodities mm-hmm. are bottoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. But I think that oil is even near levels now, which it could start to turn from. And I'm not at all unsure whether an upturn now could be, in fact, the final low. It, mm-hmm. could, it could very well be that we're making a final low. Now, whether we drive out of here in a sustained way, I doubt that. But easily, uh, 5 to $7 rally in oil could occur in the next several weeks uh, with very little nudging to the upside to get it generated. I think that would also correlate to some other commodities having a bounce, too. And funny as it seems, I think that could help the S&P 500 get a little boost. Mm-hmm. All right. Because there are and some commodity oversold sectors within and symbols within the S&P. Uh-huh. If they got enough wind in their sails for even two weeks, it can mm-hmm. help keep the S&P afloat. Uh-huh. Some of all the other sectors just, you know, pick their teeth for the next two weeks. Right, so, uh, right. Uh, it, it, Anyway. Well, that, that, that's interesting. Okay, well, well, just with a minute left here, yet, what about gold? What are you seeing there? Gold we, you know, us long, uh, yeah. it, it's had a 5% rally from its low almost, from its intraday low of several weeks ago to the recent high. Uh, it's clipped some of my second tier level of buys. Uh, so I, if I were long gold, I'd be long 50% of whatever I might wish to have on as a position. Okay. The next level that I would really pay attention to is I've got a zone from the 1140s up to the low 1160s. If you ever cleared that zone, that's the third level where I would add on the next 25%. Uh, now, that's above us, but it's not that far above us. No, it's, uh, the it's fi- not. The final level is up in the low 1200s. Uh, mm-hmm. But so far, I think gold is behaving. Uh, and I... And, and unlike the continued drop in commodities, nobody seems to note that gold's 5% off its lows. Yeah, that's true. Oh, mm-hmm. so we, we have a lot of people that want to see gold continue to go down because that's an indication to everybody that everything is fine and dandy in the hearts mm-hmm. and minds of many mm-hmm. people. So so there is definitely an anti-gold bias. I think we've been brought up to, to think that way. But uh, in any event, there's, you know, the bias is what I do appreciate about your work, Michael, is that it's... Uh, you know, you, you take the, the emotions out of it, right? And you're looking at uh, you're looking at what the markets are telling you, deciphering what the language of the markets, as Richard Russell used to like to say. And I really always appreciate you coming on. I want to thank you again for being with me. And, of course, whenever we can find some time to have you on, we want to do that. So thanks again, thanks, Michael. All right, all the best to you. All right, well, folks, uh, we do have to go to a break now. When we come back, Richard Mayberry will be with us. I'm going to ask Richard, you know, he's known for his geopolitical uh, knowledge and insights. Uh, 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 he calls himself the 5,000-year-old historian, I think, and he, he definitely brings a lot of past history into the current 
uh, understanding of what's going on. So uh, we're going to go to break, but when we come back, Richard Mayberry, talk to us about whether he thinks uh, the currency wars will evolve into a hot war. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business, for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol BALMF and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol BAR. Calinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Calinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Calinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Calinex by visiting Calinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Calinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Richard Mayberry, who's become a a fairly regular guest on this show. Always glad to have him with me because of his history, his knowledge of history, uh, which he brings into uh, the present realm and helps us understand what's going on now in the context of what has happened uh, centuries in in many cases uh, in the past. And it's very valuable because I really think that Americans... Uh, of course, I think that Americans are being dumbed down by their educational system. I think uh, we'd probably be better off if we didn't have any state schools at all in terms of our knowledge of what has actually transpired because I think uh, we're getting an, uh, a picture of what's going on that isn't at all apropos. So we turn to Richard Mayberry. I'm not going to read his bio now because uh, he's been on this show many times in the past, but I would suggest that you go to richardjmayberry.com richardjmayberry.com to go to learn more about Richard's service and really consider subscribing to his newsletter as I do because it's one of those things that I think if if you realize that what goes on in today's world is interrelated with what has gone on, what goes on in the rest of the world and then understanding the history of that and why what's happening is happening, it, it, it is very, very valuable. So thanks for joining me again, Richard. Oh, good to be here, Jay. I always enjoy talking with you. 
it's always fun to talk with you as well. And I want to make sure that that email uh, uh, or that website is is correct. That's Richard J. Mayberry. Is that right, um, Richard? I don't know about the J, uh, but for sure, RichardMayberry.com works. Okay, well, if you just Google that, you'll get his uh, you'll, you'll get his website. I was just looking at the back of your newsletter. I know I go there sometimes, but I, I bookmark it, so I couldn't tell if it was a J or an I. But in any event, I wanted to make sure. <laughs> Richard Mayberry, uh, be sure to check out his work uh, and subscribe to his letter because it's a very inexpensive letter. It comes once a month, and it's just chock full of a lot of very valuable information. Well, Richard, uh, China and Russia, you know, in, in general, the BRICS uh, have been seeking, in particular, the more powerful members of the China and Russia, for sure, and China, most uh, most of all, have been seeking to become more important in the world community. Uh, but global institutions like the IMF, which is dominated by the United States and the UK, have refused to grant China more power and more uh, more say-so in the IMF. And recently, they requested that their currency, the yuan, be included in a basket of currencies that comprise uh, the SDRs. The IMF said no, that uh, China, you still have a lot of work to do. Uh, go back to work and, and maybe sometime in the future we can consider you as, as being a member of the club. Uh, but, um, you know, what do you think prompted China, though, just, you know, this, this last week? Uh, they did a 4% devaluation of their currency, and I was looking at some statistics today, Richard, that suggested that China is still, on a trade-weighted basis, 30%, their, their currency is 30% above the other emerging markets uh, in terms of trade-weighted. In other words, it's overvalued vis-a-vis the other trade-weighted uh, the other emerging markets, and they attach themselves to the dollar more or less, and have floated with the dollar. And of course, the dollar has gained vis-a-vis the other currencies. But do you have any thoughts about what might have prompted China to do that? Certainly, trade would be one thing I would think. But what are your thoughts? Have you given any thought to this this uh, oh, devaluation? Yeah, yeah right. Um, one thing to to uh, start with is is the understanding that. Um, <clears throat> these sorts of decisions in a government are almost never made by a single person. This mm-hmm. is the, de- the decision of a committee. And we all know that committees are pretty difficult to trust if you have any common sense mm-hmm. because every decision they come up with is some sort of compromise. So you want to see this as a bunch of politicians in a room arguing with each other and the compromise they came up with <clears throat> was this devaluation. There could have been politicians in that room that actually wanted to value the yuan up rather than mm-hmm. down. Um, there's just no way to know. No. So uh, the other thing that, that, that ties in here is that what goes on in these sorts of meetings is that these are human beings and they have emotions and they have pride and they have all sorts of other <laughs> things that psychologists talk about. And that's all mixed in here with it. There's, they're not a bunch of uh, Star Trek Vulcans making this decision. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they are, are human beings with emotions, and uh, the, the emotions in these deals generally dominate. Uh, they, and what drives them is mostly fear. Each one of those persons is afraid of something in the economy, but they might be afraid of different things. So, you know, you got this this mess, <laughs> which is a political <laughs> meeting, and it came up with this decision, um, and that's all we really can say about it. Is it's driven by fear, and each of these people have different fears, and they came up with this compromise. 
So, you know, I, I generally try not to analyze political thinking because it's, uh, it's hopeless. <laughs> it's such a mess, in other words. It's, it's, yeah, it's right. Not, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Not, <laughs> it's, it's rational from each person's self-interest, perhaps, from their point of view, yeah. but not necessarily from a national point of view. That's right. That's exactly right. They, and that is another point. I mean, each of these guys is, uh, is thinking in terms of his own best interest. He's a politician, mm-hmm. and, and he makes decisions that he thinks will benefit him the most. So that's mixed into to these sorts of decisions, too. Um, and, and, and that result is the only thing you can say with great confidence is that the thinking behind any decision in any political committee room is irrational. That's all you can say about it. Um, you don't know any more than that. So you know, why they did it... Um, I haven't got the foggiest idea. Well, you know, there's all kinds of speculation. It certainly is true, though, that uh, you know, with a, a weaker currency, at least in the short run, would give China an advantage. We we're hearing all kinds of reports. I don't know again what you can believe, uh, but there there are reports coming out of China that their that their economy uh, is is much much weaker than what the politicians are letting on, mm-hmm. uh, and there is some evidence of that. I think in terms of uh, trade data and so forth. But uh, yeah. there, there, there's no doubt that a weaker yuan, at least in the short run, immediately would probably have some, some benefits, except then you might have a uh, sort of a beggar thy neighbor, 1930s style uh, competitive devaluation, wouldn't you, possibly? Yeah, right. You're, what you're doing there is you're going through the opinions of the various people in that political room right now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you can go, you can, well, this might happen, and that might happen, and this could yeah. go that way, and... But nobody really knows. What, what we do, I think what we can be extremely confident about is that China is the biggest mountain of malinvestment ever in world history. Now, <clears throat> what do I mean by malinvestment? Most people keep track of investment. I try to keep track of malinvestment, and that means investments that are in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing, that just should not have been created. And uh, the way malinvestment generally happens is that a government will inject money into the economy. It'll print a bunch of it up and uh, go out and spend it on something. So that, that new money is injected into the economy. It goes into, <clears throat> it doesn't descend on the economy in a uniform blanket. It goes into specific locations. Those locations become hotspots, and businesses move into those hotspots to take advantage of these increased flows of money. And those businesses moving into these hotspots are malinvestment. They are going where they would not have gone uh, if the inflation of the money supply had not happened. Well, then the businesses are there. After the government has been injecting money for a while, the businesses are there. They are dependent on that increased flow of money. And the day will come when the money will flow elsewhere, and these businesses will will start going broke. Or the government will just stop printing the money or slow the printing of the money. In, in one way or another, the malinvestment will start to shake out. And that's what we call a recession, or if it's allowed to go all the way to completion, it's called a depression, is the shakeout of the malinvestment. Now, I think what's going on in China right now is the malinvestment is starting to shake out. And I think the Chinese government has done so many artificial things to pump up its economy over the last, let's say, 30 years, 
that that mountain of malinvestment is is a genuine Himalaya, and um, it is starting to shake out. And I bet you those people in that room, those politicians, are scared out of their minds. Um, they don't know what to do other than keep manipulating the currency and and try to find ways to keep having currency flow into the hotspots to keep the malinvestment alive. And that's essentially the, the decision that they're all batting around in this room, probably on a daily basis. Um, what do we do today about this malinvestment that's starting to shake out? Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I, I would guess, I don't know for a fact, but I would guess that there is an air of panic in that meeting room. And they will be trying one thing after another, uh, none of which will work because the malinvestment is there. These skyscrapers are there. You've probably read about uh, the ghost cities mm-hmm. in China. Entire cities have been built that are practically empty. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of the malinvestment that they have created. And nobody in history has ever come close to doing something that awful on that large of a scale. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true, uh, Richard. You know that in terms of the quantitative easing, uh, so-called quantitative easing, which of course is a misnomer. It's it's inflation. It's printing press money that sends the wrong signals, sends artificial signals, and hence the malinvestment that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was Warren Buffett or whoever came up with the notion or the picture of when the tide goes out, we see who's swimming naked, and that's uh, mm-hmm. certainly when the tide goes out and when the well, we've seen the tremendous amount of of of, of oil and other commodities that were uh, purchased uh, steel. The, the I mean, we're in a depression in some of those industries now. Mm-hmm. Australia, the countries that are producing those raw materials are having a heck of a time. So it is a global problem that we're having yeah. now. Just mm-hmm. after the two thousand eight two thousand nine, we saw an expansion. In large part because of this Chinese, uh, you know, malinvestment and buying all of these things that helped to pull, in a way, helped to pull, I suppose, some of the markets out of the doldrums. But now, because they're not sustainable, because they weren't market-driven, we're starting to see this huge outflow, and uh, and we're seeing who's swimming naked. And I guess I I, I, I suppose that a large number of Chinese folks. Uh, are swimming naked right now. But uh, in any event, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the petrodollar. Richard, you know, when Nixon took us off the gold standard, Nick Kissinger uh, shortly thereafter went to Saudi Arabia and arranged to have oil paid for in U.S. dollars, and that has come to be known as the petrodollar. And I was just watching something, uh, Lawrence Wilkerson, who is a distinguished visiting professor of government at, uh, and public policy at the College of William and Mary and former chief of staff of, uh, of Colin Powell, Secretary of State, when he was Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. He said, the BRICs want to use oil to force the United States to lose its uh, incredibly powerful role of owning the world's transactional reserve currency. Now, Talk to us a little bit, if you would, about the importance of having the world's reserve currency. What has that meant for the United States? And to what extent do you think this is uh, the wars that are being fought? I I know that wars are fought, as you point out in your newsletter, going back centuries. People hate each other in different parts of the world, and that's been aggravated by by various superpowers coming in and mixing things up and and, and making things even worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, But to what extent do you think... Uh, the U.S. is continuing to, the U.S. and the NATO alliances are continuing to get involved, try to stop Putin from selling oil to certain parts of Europe or, or what have you. Do, you. do you have a sense that the wars are in part 
related to this uh, maintenance of the petrodollar and the world's reserve currency by the United States? I think it's a factor, uh, no doubt. Um, you you want to you want to see the behavior of any given government as the same as the behavior of the leaders of a street gang. Um, <laughs> they they want to maintain control of their turf, um, and um, they will do anything that it takes to maintain control of their turf. So. Um, you know they are they are always scared of some other gang taking over their turf, and they will do what they can to hurt that other gang. And in the world, we've got 206 countries, which means we've got 206 governments or 206 street gangs trying to control their turf and keep the others, the other 205 in each case, from taking over their turf. And if if that means wrecking somebody else's economy. They will do it in a heartbeat, <laughs> and and that's what um, you, you know. This currency war that you're referring to is really all about. Is they're just trying to to keep all of their competitors weak. Uh, in any case, any government, they want their competitors to be weak, and they will manipulate anything they have to, the currency or anything else, in order to keep their competitors weak. Uh, and I think these uh, uh, the maneuvers to try to remove the dollar as the world reserve currency, that's definitely involved in this in some way, in some big way probably. Um, and uh, it's just going to be interesting to see how it turns out. It's, the one thing is for sure is that the dollar um, at, at this particular moment in history is a popular currency and a trusted currency for people's savings in, in millions of cases. Um, but it's really just uh, the most beautiful warthog in the herd, and um, that will change. And what these other governments are doing is trying to hurry it up. The advantage of being the reserve currency is that other people in other countries uh, will accept it in trade for your goods and services and they will use it for their own savings and so you can pay your debts in money that you can print mm-hmm. uh, if it's not the reserve currency you can't do that because you've got to pay in the reserve currency in most cases mm-hmm. and it's only the person who issues the reserve currency that can print money to pay his debts and that's what the U.S. government has been able to do through most of the 20, 20th century and all of the 21st century is, um, <clears throat> is print money to pay its debts all over the world. Well, if the government of Russia and Iran and whoever else um, succeed in getting together and removing the U.S. privilege of, of being the reserve currency, then the government is stuck with not being able to print money to pay its debts, and then it's going to have to either tax us much, much more heavily to pay its debts, or it's going to have to default on the debts. There will be some type of catastrophe in the United States. So it's really easy to to believe that these politicians in these other countries are um, forming some sort of conspiracy to do that, but again... We don't know what goes in, on in those rooms, and they can change their minds the next day. It's, it's just you, you, you really are fooling yourself if you think you can predict the behavior of a government because <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly for what you say. So you have all of these street gangs, a uh, hundred and some num- na- nations that you mentioned, but within each street gang, there are a bunch of guys that are trying to cut each other's throats to take over and be the big, the top dog in those, in those, within those street gangs. That's right. And That's it's, exactly uh, it's, right. it's ultimate chaos is what you're talking about. Yes. You know, uh, it, it, yeah. One very interesting question that I have for you, Richard, you know, and I, I don't know, nobody knows exactly what the numbers are, but there's lots of indications. In fact, I think the, Chi- the, uh, the People's Bank of China came out recently and, and doubled the official amount of gold that China has. Uh, and there are people that keep track of these things, like Coos Jensen and others, that are suggesting that China has imported enormous amounts of gold over the last number of years, far, far more than, uh, than what the People's Bank of China is suggesting that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I believe that to be the case. But uh, again, what we, if you try to, you just can't figure out what the thinking is there, though. But if, if China is trying to do that, if they are importing huge amounts of gold, the official numbers are showing also that Russia is doing the same. We know that Indians import enormous amounts of gold, and, and more recently, silver, when they put on taxes on to the importation of gold there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... You have these bricks that are, that seem to be pro metal, pro you know. I I don't want to give them any credit for being free market types that believe in sound money. I don't think for a minute that that's the case. Yeah. But maybe they're seeing or perceiving some advantage in this currency war uh, against a, a a prolific printing West. I mean, not that not that we're worse than China for goodness sakes, but. I, what are, do you have any thoughts about why, uh, if indeed that's the case, I believe it to be the case, that enormous amounts of gold is being transferred uh, from the West to the East? James Turk has always pointed out that wealth, general, that the gold generally flows uh, you know, to the countries that are becoming more prosperous. But, on the, but, but in the meantime, if we're, you know, if we're having a global recession, I, who knows? But any, any thoughts about the, uh, the penchant for owning gold uh, in the East? Well, that's a, it's an old uh, custom. Um, one, one thing to be aware of there that most Americans have, have no understanding of is that the governments of Europe conquered uh, during the colonial period for many centuries. They conquered almost the entire world uh, except for five countries, and that was uh, Afghanistan, parts of China, Japan, Thailand, and Iran. Uh-huh. Except for those countries, they conquered the entire world. And so pretty much the entire world hates the West yeah, and doesn't trust the West. Well, we've got all these international bodies, economic bodies like the IMF um, and, and, these, uh, and the World Bank and all. These are inventions of the West. So... Um, the you know the rest of the world looks on these these bodies as, with a great deal of suspicion, and they look on the currencies with a great deal of suspicion. So they have always, um, in Asia and elsewhere, had the tradition of saving gold because the West can't print gold, mm-hmm. you can't make it on a printing press like you can dollars or euros, and um, there were there have always been huge amounts of gold and silver that have been hoarded in Asia because of this distrust and hatred of the West. And uh, I think well, you know, the, the main thing to keep in mind about it is that you know those people are hoarding huge amounts because they always have. That's part of their culture. 
but you don't know how much or where or who has it or what they're going to do with it. We just know it's over there um, and that any rational person would be owning some gold and silver himself because there is this um, stability to it that governments are never going to be able to create. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there's just no chance that any government is ever going to be trusted as much as the metals are because these are elements. They're on the periodic table. They cannot be created out of thin air. Uh, and I don't know what to say other than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's fair enough. I, I think I, I think you uh, you presented very very rationally, of, of course, and uh, there's reason uh, to want to own a non-political monetary uh, money so that uh, it retains its value, as you say. You know, um, I, I want to get your thoughts about uh, something that. Uh, that John Kerry just said recently. You know, there. First of all, your your thoughts on the uh, on the nuclear arrangement uh, with Iran that uh, President Obama is trying to get through Congress. Uh, is, is it a good idea or not? What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, these are Iranian politicians and American politicians and other <laughs> politicians making agreements with each other. Um, so we've got a whole bunch of liars that have made an agreement. And um, should we be concerned about that? I don't know. Uh, but, um, you know, how can you really really put much, uh, much uh, credibility in an agreement among a, a group of liars? I don't know. All we can probably be sure of is that they're all going to stab each other in the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's about all we can say. Um, so... Well, I just, um, I- yeah, yeah, I just thought it was interesting because John Kerry is making the point. I, I mean, this could be just nothing but internal politics to try to put pressure on Republicans to go ahead and get this, to try to get this, uh, this thing and this agreement passed mm-hmm. for Obama's legacy or whatever his own interests are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Kerry is making a, a deal about. He says, "What are you? You? Uh, somebody raised the question about. Well, uh, if U.S. Congress turns this down, should we then force our allies not to trade with Iran?" And he said, "Are you kidding me? Are you really kidding me? I mean, first of all, we got these uh, our allies to sacrifice a great deal by not trading with Iran, and then we turned down. And and the Iranians have done what we've asked them to, and we in America turned down this deal. And then we go to the to our allies and say, you can't trade." with Iran now and we're going to or we're going to punish you and uh, he said you know if you guys want to fool around like that we may in fact uh, be on the on the precipice of learning of losing our reserve currency status so this is the first time I've heard any sort of high-ranking politician talk about uh, in those terms and with those kinds of threats about losing our reserve currency status but I thought that was very interesting and maybe it's just nothing more than Kerry playing internal politics trying to force uh, you know, a couple of few members of Congress to vote with the Obama situation. Who knows? But uh, I just mm-hmm. thought it was very interesting. Any thoughts yeah, on that? Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, there you got the street gang mentality. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think uh, we, we come back to the fact that, that each of those politicians in that meeting room has his own personal agenda that he's going to be pushing. And you, we don't really know what those agendas are. Uh, because they're not going to disclose them. So um, I don't know what else to say besides that. 
Yeah, well, good enough. I, I, I want to thank you very much for being with us. One thing that we didn't get to talk to uh, about today is velocity of money. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that you in your last newsletter talked about velocity of money. I, as an Austrian thinker, do believe there is a legitimacy to that, even though it smacks of Keynesian economics. I agree with you. But the whole notion of turning over, when people lose confidence in the monetary system, they try to hang on to what they've got. Or if they see inflation coming, they'll start to spend, spend, spend just to get something tangible in their hands because they know that the currency is going to go to zero. And we've been on this low velocity binge and it continues to go lower. Uh, I see we're out of time. So I guess we'll have to reserve your thoughts uh, about this for the next time, Richard. But I would say, folks, go and read Richard's newsletter if you want to know about monetary velocity and why it's important. All these other things we talked about much, much more. You heard a little bit today about Richard's Uh, sense of history and how it comes into the present. So thank you very much, Richard, for being with us. I'm sorry we're out of time. We'll talk to you again sometime soon, I hope. Thanks very much, Jay. Thank you very much. Well, folks, next week we're going to have Franklin Sanders as well as Malcolm Davidson of Avino Silver with us. Uh, So we hope that you'll join us again next week. Until, Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno.